Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Bethany. Welcome to those of you who are joining us over in the chapel or listening in online. It's so good to be with you. My name is Abby, and I am the pastor of college and post-college here at the Green Lake uh, location. And um, just thrilled to be here as we dive into this text today from Isaiah. As many of you know, if you were here last week um, for this Advent season, we're going to be looking at uh, this Old Testament prophetic book, this book of Isaiah, um, and we're going to be gleaning from that. What does this prophet have to say? Um, how does he inform our understanding of the significance of this event that we celebrate at Christmas, which is the coming of Christ with us? So that's where we're headed today. Um, as we do that, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll, we'll get going. So would you pray with me? Jesus, we uh, pause in the midst of um, what can for many of us be a joyful season, an overwhelming season, um, a season filled with reminders of lost and, loss in years past. And God, we invite you into whatever our circumstances are this morning. We thank you for these words of good news that we've heard. God, we pray that as we study them and ponder them and explore them, God, we ask that that wouldn't just be an exercise, but that we would actually be shaped by them, that um, we would be transformed, that we would be better equipped to go out into your world as people of hope. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So uh, some time ago, I read a book called The Swerve. Uh, some of you may recognize that title. It's, I think it won the Pulitzer Prize in 2012. But it's a work of nonfiction, and in this book, the author is a guy by the name of Stephen Greenbalt. And he tells this fascinating true story about a man named Lucretius. Lucretius was a Roman philosopher. He lived roughly like 50 years before the time of Christ. We don't know a ton about him. But Lucretius wrote a poem called On the Nature of Things. And in this poem, he makes the argument that human life is random, that the notion of God's existing is like this myth. He actually says that religion, belief in a higher power is toxic, is harming the human race. And then at the end, Lucretius says, kind of the best that we can do given all that is to sort of look out for ourselves, to make the most of the time that we have. And the interesting part of the story is that after penning these words, Lucretius's work was lost for more than a thousand years. Some of you might know this story. And during the span of that time, right, so he wrote about 50 years before Christ, during that span of time where his work was lost, Christianity grew. It expanded all across the globe. The church grew. And um, so it wasn't until the 15th century then, after the spread of the Christian faith, that an Italian book hunter finds the only copy of Lucretius's poem hidden away in some German monastery, um, and this book hunter, uh, he was really disenchanted with the church of the Middle Ages. He thought that, you know, the ways in which they guilted people into um, giving to the church, giving alms to the church, he thought the ways that the church scared people away from hell and into heaven, he was just through with it. So he finds this work and it's like this breath of fresh air. Like religion is toxic. Um, all we have is kind of what we see in the here and now. And so this, this book hunter, he starts spreading this work around. He publishes it, um, and eventually it, it becomes something that's read really widely. Now, Greenbelt argues that the discovery of this poem incited this shift, and this is the part I want to get to, incited this shift whereby um, the Christian worldview was actually replaced with a new understanding of the world. 
And he sums that understanding this way. Greenbelt writes this, he says, what human beings can and should do is conquer their fears, accept that they themselves and all the things they encounter are transitory, and embrace the beauty and the pleasure of the world. In essence, life is short, right? Your, your existence here is random and unintentional. Learn all you can, make the most of your time, live it up, overcome fear and obstacles as best you can, because at the end of the day, you're the only one looking out for yourself. Now, all of that is good and well, and Greenbalt is right that, you know, this understanding of life, one way or another, it has become deeply, deeply, deeply embedded in our culture today. And yet, that being true, it's worth pausing this morning as we look at these words from Isaiah and asking this question, how is that working out for us? Like, how is this every person for themselves sort of mentality panning out? Here's the one word summation I would offer to that question. Despair. In other words, it's not working so great. Before moving to Seattle, I worked in a similar pastoral role in uh, the Silicon Valley in California. And um, similar to Seattle, uh, the Silicon Valley is a place where many, not all, but many folks have access to great education, right? There's ample opportunity. There's technological advancements coming out of that area that are fundamentally changing the way we interact with the world. And um, all of that being true, our local high schools had a suicide rate that was five times the national average, right? All of that being true, all of that opportunity, and yet depression and anxiety were off the charts amongst the college students I had the privilege of knowing and working with. I'll never forget the day I got a phone call from one of the administrators at a local um, university. We'll call her Kathy because that was actually her name. And... Um, I was sure, I was sure when I got this call, she was a very intimidating person. You know those people you just like don't want to get a call from and then you don't want to call them back. But um, her voicemail actually said like, call me, call me now. And so I gave her a call. She said, can we meet today? I said, okay. And I was sure she was calling because um, this particular university had very strict protocol about how the church could interact with the students who attended. And I was like, man, we messed up. Like, we did something wrong, and I'm just going to bite the bullet and like, whatever, fall on my sword. I show up. Kathy did not want to talk about protocol. One of their students had committed suicide the weekend before, and I didn't know this student um, personally, but I know that she attended one of the nation's best schools, most prominent schools in the country. Kathy said she was well-liked. She was top 10 in the class. Kathy knew her quite well, it seemed. And as she told me this, she just wept like uncontrollably. And when she finished, she looked up at me and she said, and I'll never forget this, she looked at me and said, they need a different way. They need a different way. And then she said, we need you here. And she wasn't talking about me personally, but talking about kind of this ministry I represented. We need you here because they need something else. And what became immediately clear to me as she said this was that she wasn't just talking about her students. She wasn't just talking about the millennial generation. But in that moment, Kathy herself needed another way. She was overwhelmed with despair. And the life kind of model, the life framework that she adopted, it was so evident, just couldn't hold that. 
And I tell that story because the words we read from Isaiah this morning, they are words directed towards a people who are also looking for another way. In the text we've read, the prophet is speaking to Israel, God's chosen people who have been living in exile in Babylon, right? We talked about that last week. They've been in um, exile for some 70 years. And for the duration of that time, their hope was kept alive by the memory of Jerusalem, by the memory of, you know, their sacred temple, by their homes and their fields and their vineyards. And now in Isaiah 61, they've returned home. They've been freed from captivity. They've returned home to find all of that is gone. Their fields are overgrown. Their city is utterly destroyed. Their temple is a pile of rocks. For the last few weeks, we've been seeing pictures coming out of Paradise, California as folks are returning home. Nothing (laughs) to nothing, right? The fires, they destroyed everything. It's all gone. This is the kind of sort of demise that Israel faces. And all of us in the room, while we may not know what it's like to lose our livelihood, we know loss. We know despair. We know anxiety and depression. We know the soul-crushing weight of pressure and expectation. We know infertility. We know loneliness. We know the death of a spouse. We know divorce. We know the news every evening. Not good. We know what it's like to be in a place where outcomes are beyond our control. And in that moment, this paradigm that we've read about, this paradigm that Lucretius offers, which essentially says, do your best at life, it comes up short, vastly short. It's not attached to anything. It's not substantial. It doesn't account for my own imperfections. It doesn't account for the imperfections of this world in which we're living in. It doesn't offer us a way forward in despair. It can't hold the weight of that. We need another way. And so we come to Isaiah 61, you'll notice God, by way of the prophet Israel, offers an alternative way forward. And central to that offering is a little word that we see over and over again in this passage. It's a word central to precisely what we talk about when we say good news, and the word is simply this, instead. Instead. It implies that there is a way of being in the world that even as you stand in the midst of chaos and missed expectations and unwelcome circumstances and, you know, a diagnosis that you didn't see coming, even when you stand in the midst of that, despair does not have the final say. Instead, there's another way. And so as we look at the text this morning, I'd invite you to just consider Isaiah's three alternatives or insteads with me. And these insteads are woven throughout this chapter. And they're they're in your bulletin if you want to follow along this morning. But here they are, belonging, purpose, and joy. Instead of despair, instead of everything being up to you, God says there's another way of belonging, purpose, and joy. So we begin with this notion of belonging. Instead of despair, belonging. Now, at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 61, you'll notice that the prophet begins with this beautiful statement regarding what it is that God has sent him to do, right? Bring good news to the oppressed. Bind up the brokenhearted. Proclaim liberty to the captives. It's one of the most beautiful passages in all of scripture. And then at the end of verse two, the prophet says this, I have come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, though it may, be, um, may not be overtly obvious to us as sort of the 21st century reader, this particular phrase would have immediately cued the Israelites listening 
to a mandate that was given to them by God many years ago, and that mandate was to practice something they called jubilee. See, in the ancient world, it was common um, for a person or a family to become indebted to another person. And that person might turn over their home or their property or even themselves in order to pay off that debt. But in Leviticus chapter 25, God outlines for Israel this practice of jubilee, also called the year of the Lord's favor, whereby he says every 50th year, everyone who is held captives are to be held captive, they are to be released. All the slaves are to be sent home. Land was to be returned to its original owner. That's just how it went. And at the very end of Leviticus chapter 25, God wraps up this commandment with this sort of validation for why this jubilee is to happen. In Leviticus 25, verse 55, God says this, for the people of Israel belong to me. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now let me bring this together. Here is the significance of Isaiah's reference to this jubilee moment. Israel stands and they're facing a destroyed city, right? Their future is bleak. Things are unknown. And here is where God begins. Remember Jubilee. Remember the Lord's favor. Remember you belong to me. Notice God's first, uh, when God first meets Israel in despair, he doesn't say, you know, this is all your fault. Like you should have listened to me a hundred years ago when I was sending people to tell you stop with this self-destructive behavior. To, to these people, that's not where he starts. He doesn't meet Israel in their despair by promising specific outcomes around their circumstances, at least not in this initial section of the text. Instead, God offers this profound jubilee reminder. Israel stands before God. They are homeless, reputationless, and helpless. And God says, you're mine. You belong. It's interesting, given our Western sort of bent towards individualism and doing and fixing, fixing, often, if you're like me, we'll read this passage and we'll assume the role of the prophet. By that I mean, we assume this is a command to help the afflicted, the brokenhearted, and the captive. And while that is certainly a fair reading of the text, that is certainly something God calls us to do, um, before we are called to do, we're called to be. And if we mix up these two callings, if we confuse the order of these two invitations, we will find ourselves, even despite the best intentions, we will find ourselves living in the relentless grips of modernity, which says your life is the culmination of what you can do. And here's the thing that's guaranteed, despair will follow. There's a really interesting study in 2017 by the American Journal of Preventative Medicine, which concluded that social, uh, social isolation which they defined as a state in which an individual lacks a sense of social belonging and fulfilling relationships. They said that sort of isolation is associated with an increased risk of morbidity and mortality. In other words, an increased risk of disease and death. See, what this means is physiologically, right, emotionally and spiritually, we were created to belong. And science affirms what God makes clear from the beginning, this belonging is fundamental. Perhaps this is why God, before his initiation um, of Jesus' ministry, right, before Jesus ever does anything, what does God proclaim? This is my son. He's mine. I'm well pleased. 
Perhaps this is why Jesus, before sending his disciples in John 17, prays this deeply moving prayer for his friends, which essentially could be summed, Father God, help them to know they are yours. And Jesus knew, he knew they were headed into circumstances where they would have every reason to despair, right? It's in the text, persecution, fear, real fear, death even, yes, all of that would happen. And God knows that the only thing that will keep them from despair in those moments is this jubilee understanding of self. You belong, like always. Like you will never not belong. When I was growing up, my folks had this funny little saying where we'd um, be like, I don't know, getting out of the car to go to a game or a dance or wherever we were going, school. And... um, They'd say to us, remember who you are. And to be honest, I never really asked about that. It's funny, it was this very prevalent part of my childhood. I never asked about it. And I always thought it kind of meant like, make good choices, you know, remember that you represent your parents and don't disappoint us, whatever. Um, But just over a year ago, uh, Sam and I became pregnant with our son. And during my pregnancy, I would try to swim a few times a week. Swimming is generous, but we'll say I tried to swim. Um, And as I swam, I had this sort of long flowery prayer that a friend had given me, and I was committed to remembering it and praying for our son. And I could never remember the entire thing, but the first line went like this, may he know he is a child of God, loved by God. And over time, I gave up the rest of the prayer and just landed on those words, and over and over again, I would just repeat that. And what I realized in doing this was that if Mark, our now son, could grow up and remember these truths about his own belonging, there's nothing else to pray for. Like, that would be enough. Come what may, that would be enough. Uh, Mark is now just over a year old. um, And in the morning when I leave him for work uh, or when I put him to bed at night, I find myself repeating that same phrase that my parents told me, like, Remember who you are, buddy. Lately, it's been remember who you are and please, please don't pull the other kid's hair. But (laughs) Isaiah says to Israel, I have come to set the captives free. And for us this morning, there's a question that invites our own reflection, which is this, am I held captive by any understanding of self outside of my belonging to God? I held captive by how well my job is going. For better or worse, where I sit on the corporate ladder. Am I held captive by appearances, like projecting the right image of myself or my family to the world? Am I held captive um, by decisions that I've made in my past? Maybe poor decisions I've made in my past. Am I held captive by my performance in the classroom? What is it that holds you captive this morning? Remember who you are. The second instead that God offers in this passage is purpose. Instead of despair, God offers his people purpose. See, after referencing the Jubilee, Isaiah continues and he makes this proclamation regarding Israel. He says, they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. Now notice here the progression of the text, right? God starts with his Jubilee reminder to Israel that they belong to him. And then, rooted in their belonging, God compares Israel to a tree that will display the glory of the Lord. And we know that 
To belong to something or to someone is to take up their cause, right? Uh, Russell Wilson belongs to the Seahawks organization. It would be really odd and possibly even tragic if he took up the cause of the Vikings tomorrow night. Like, we wouldn't be for that. I'll never forget in our pre-marriage counseling when our therapist informed um, me and my then-fiancé, Sam, that um, being married met in conflict, uh, that the rules of the game sort of changed because Sam and I now belonged to one another, and that meant that there was neither winner or loser when we would fight. Um, But if Sam wins, then I win, and if I win, then Sam wins, um, because that's just how it works now. We're one. I said to our therapist, um, just to be clear, a game where everyone wins is not a game, it's an activity, but uh, he liked that. But you get the idea, belonging and purpose are interlinked. And God says, you will display my glory. In other words, your life will be this tree, this image to the rest of the world about the kind of God that I am, about the kind of kingdom that I'm creating. And in Isaiah 61, verse 8, as if to leave us no room to question what that kingdom looks like, God actually inserts God's self into the text. See, up until this point, it's been the prophet speaking, but God here, he speaks in the first person. This is profound. Even the structure of the text itself implies this sort of intertwining between humanity and God and our shared purpose. And God speaks and says, for I, the Lord, love justice. And we know, right, that word justice, it's not legal justice. It's about a right ordering, right? It's about systems and structures in place that uphold the image of God that we know, we know, we know is in every person. It's about the created world being cared for. It's about every person knowing there is a God who is for me. And this includes the orphan and the widow and the refugee, knowing the very same sense of belonging that we ourselves have come to experience. God says, Israel, you are my chosen one. In your belonging, now exemplify this way of being in the world. Create a community that reflects my intent, my right ordering of things. That's your purpose. Some of you might be familiar with the name Viktor Frankl. Uh, He's an Austrian neurologist who lived through World War II. Uh, Viktor was an Auschwitz survivor. He was taken to the death camp with his pregnant wife and parents. Three years later, when the camp was liberated, um, nearly everyone in his family, including his wife, had perished. Viktor knew what it was like to experience despair. And after the war, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning, It's rumored that um, it took him only nine days to write this text. Um, And in the book, Frankel shares his observation that while imprisoned in Auschwitz, he tragically observed that the difference between those who lived and those who died was meaning. Like that was one of the factors. The, The people who had this will to survive, they carried with them this sense that there's a bigger story, a bigger thing that I'm a part of. It's not just about me and what I can do for myself today. We read in Isaiah 61, verse 3, where God affirms this correlation. He says, To despairing Israel, I will bestow on them a mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. Now, that word mantle, um, it's important. A mantle is a garment that a person would put on with a specific task in mind. Like it's a piece of clothing that you would put on to do something. The scholar and pastor Eugene Peterson described a mantle this way. He says, the mantle is the garment you put on when you go out in the world to do something or see someone. 
It is a piece of clothing that readies you for the vigorous participation in the world. When you leave the house and throw a mantle across your shoulders, you are ready to work with confidence and zest. And God says, in place of a faint spirit, instead of allowing despair to overwhelm you, remember who you are and then put on the mantle. Now, I realize it's sort of easy to oversimplify, even romanticize Israel's story, right, in a way that risks trivializing the real despair that people in this room no doubt are feeling right now. Make no mistake, what God offers Israel in this passage, it's not a formula. Got to be careful of that. It's not, it's not some prosperity gospel. It's not a guarantee that life circumstances will always hash out in our favor um, and that our job is kind of to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps to end our pain. That's not what God's saying. Rather, the prophet is offering Israel sort of a, a way of being in the world, though there are painful and hard pieces. He's saying there's a way of being in the world and you can bring that into the, the folds of this greater story in which you are now situated, in which you are now central players. One of the greatest books I've read um, this year is a book called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. It's written by a woman who is a um, theologian. She's a professor at Duke Divinity School. Um, and in her early 30s, she was diagnosed with stage four terminal colon cancer. And this tragic event occurred just after she'd sort of landed her dream job. She and her husband had a son who was one year old at the time. And as she tells the story, Kate is quick to reject any and all Christian platitudes. And at one point, a well-meaning friend tells her, God just needs another angel to come home. And she says to that friend, that's nice, but why didn't God choose you? Which I think is a really valid response. But as she faces the reality of this word terminal, she's met by moments of profound despair, right? Despair at the thought of not getting to watch her son grow up. She's haunted by that. Despair because her life isn't unfolding the way she envisioned it would. And she talks about these feelings becoming so overwhelming at points that she would literally have to like pull back from what she was doing. She just had to kind of stop everything. And here's what she writes about those moments. I just find this so profound. How do you stop? You just stop. You come to the end of yourself and then you take a deep breath and say a prayer, and you get back to work. In other words, you pause, you breathe, you pray, this gesture that reminds you that you're not alone, that you're not kind of just the sum of the atoms which make up your being, but you remember who you are, connected, right? A person who belongs, a person who is part of a greater story, and those circumstances are not always what you choose, you get back to work. I love how she puts it so simply, you give shape to something. For Kate, it was a beautiful piece of writing that reflects the nature of this God to whom she belongs, a testament to a God that has met her in her pain, though that pain was absolutely unwelcome. For Israel, it was rebuilding this city, refashioning, reconstructing, vineyards, replanted, a physical place that reflects the justice and love, the right ordering as God would have it. And again, the question that the text puts to our own stories is this. Are we embracing and embodying the shared purpose of the one to whom we belong? 
Are we embracing and embodying the shared purpose of the one to whom we belong? The prophet announces that Israel will be called oaks of righteousness. Notice the tense enlisted by the prophet. It's intentionally futuristic. In other words, oak trees don't become oak trees overnight. And I don't know about you, but that gives me a lot of hope. See, depending on the season of life you find yourself in, growth in alignment with God's purpose will look different, right? For some people um, in the room, this could mean something as significant as a career change. But for others, it might mean, you know, participating in the book club that's being hosted by our Ministry of Racial Justice and Reconciliation. For others, it might mean, you know, considering adoption, For some of you in the room, it might mean responding to your spouse and going to a marriage therapist. For people who are sitting here and you're feeling like, man, I am in the throes of depression, it might mean just getting up every day and walking around the block. See, whatever it is for you, whatever it is for each of us, the promise is the same, that your life is infused with meaning. There's a reason you're here. It has purpose. Finally, the third instead we take from Isaiah 61 is this, instead of despair, joy. I know this word joy is one that's sort of thrown around, especially this time of year. It's kind of got this feel good, like peppermint mocha, I don't know, whatever your Christmas thing is. Um, But this like feel good sentiment attached to it. But when the prophet uses this word at the end of Isaiah 61, it's far more than just like a feel good word. He writes this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exalt in my God. Now, if you look at the the Hebrew, you'll notice where the English translation reads greatly rejoice, there's actually a grammatical device that reiterates the verb. So it literally should read joy, joy. Like there's this overwhelming sense that I am so joyful, I cannot contain it. And what's interesting to note here is that Israel's circumstances, they haven't changed, right? Right? Things haven't actually gotten better for them yet, but the prophet proclaims joy, joy. And then he goes on to compare himself to a groom on his wedding day, full of anticipation about the soon-to-be marriage. And it's worth, again, pausing here and noting the language used, it remains connected to this notion of belonging. The author writes, he rejoices in and he exalts in. And in, as it's used here, it's an intimacy word. Similarly, the metaphor of the bride and groom used by the author to describe this connection to God, it implies like deep intimacy, a knowing, a a withness, you could call it. Now, keeping that in mind, let's fast forward 500 years, where at some temple in Nazareth, a nothing city like Nazareth, a Jewish rabbi named Jesus stands in front of a group of folks and reads the very same text we looked at today. He reads those words from the prophet of Isaiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus takes his seat, all eyes are on him, and he takes his seat among the people. And Luke says in this unprecedented statement, Jesus speaks the words, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, why does that matter? Here's why it matters. In this moment, Jesus is saying, all of these insteads, these alternatives, this different way that you've been looking for, here it is, right? 
all of these instead, they are believable. They are operational because I, God, am with you now in the flesh. Like this act of incarnation of God becoming human in Jesus, it's the ultimate expression of closeness, right? The bridegroom intimacy in Isaiah 61 that is the source of such joy, it is solidified and personified now in the person of Jesus. And friends, here is why that is good news for us. Because it means that we not only belong to Jesus, it means that we not only have purpose in him, but hear this, it means our outcomes are attached to his outcomes. That's how close we are. And what are the outcomes? Good news, recovery, the end of oppression, life over death, no more cancer, no more despair, no more anxiety. Because of Christ's coming and dying and overcoming death, we live attached to this promise that history is actually headed towards justice, towards this ultimate right ordering. And friends, we, the church, we belong to that outcome. So well, today we do not fully experience the world as it should be and as it will be, well, there is an active and sometimes painful waiting that we must embrace at points. We say with Israel, joy, joy, because we know that despair does not and cannot have, like, win out over Christ, and therefore it cannot win out over us either. Just over a year ago, uh, some of our dearest friends encountered just unimaginable and difficult circumstances. Um, their, their son, who was four years old at the time, he's a vibrant, happy kid, um, became sick with what they thought was just kind of a normal cold. And a few days later, they found out that it was actually a virus that had moved into his brain. He spent two months in the PICU in Portland, during which time he was given a 50-50 chance of survival. And praise God, he did survive, but as a result of this sickness, he can't um, walk. He has seizures that are just kind of ongoing, so he's unable to walk. He's unable to swallow, so he can't consume food orally. He's unable to speak or really communicate at all. As you can imagine, life for our friends and their family now looks very different than it once had. And she happened to be up visiting this week, um, this particular friend, the mom of this boy. And as we were chatting, I asked her about this word despair. I asked her, how have you found a way through this without being consumed by it? It's actually a conversation we have pretty regularly nowadays. And her answer was long and wise, but she ended with this little comment that landed for me. She said this, don't underestimate the power of being with, of people simply coming and showing up and waiting with us. We had people who were orienting us away from despair just by being there. I love these words, and while I think they are this sort of beautiful picture of how God kind of intends the church to walk together through suffering. I also think her words very accurately describe what Jesus did and does for us. Right? He came. He showed up. And in his resurrection, he now orients us away from despair towards this new kingdom that has come and is coming. Keeps us focused on that. Keeps us moving towards that. In one of the final chapters of Scripture, in the book of Revelation, there's another prophet who reminds us of the nature of this orientation. He says this, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of 
uh, heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne of God saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Friends, this Advent season, we rejoice in that we belong to this God. (laughs) That our lives and our efforts and the areas where we despair are attached to this single assured outcome which says no more tears. Like that's Jesus' story. You belong. It's your story now too. In just a moment, the band's going to come back up and we'll continue to worship together. And as we do that this morning, I'd encourage you to take a moment and first just focus on that truth. You belong. Like you have a place. Remember that. Start there. And from there, especially if you're in a season where despair feels close or a season of waiting or uncertainty, I'd encourage you to just orient yourself towards those words we just read. Wipe away every tear. No more death or mourning or crying or pain. That's the old order of things and it's going away. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together this morning. Jesus, we thank you that, uh, that you came. <laughs> that throughout history, you worked to communicate that I am a God who is with you. And to be sure, to be sure, to be sure that we understood that you came in the person of Christ. God, we thank you that you gather us up and you orient us in a new direction. God, I pray especially for the person here this morning who feels like they're just living on the edge with that word despair. God, I ask that there would be a real felt sense in this moment of your kindness towards them. God, and the hope that you offer and that that your story, this isn't the end of it. That we're going somewhere and we're going there with you. God, that we will never not belong. We thank you for that good news. We're grateful for your death and your life and your resurrection. Amen.